You may be seated. One of the things I picked up from John Calvin in reading is that when he went back to Geneva, he picked up exactly where he had stopped before he left the city. So I'm picking up in 1 Peter. Now, this is a large section before us, and I don't intend on hitting every single point. My intention is for us to see the sense of what God is calling us to, particularly as we consider how do we live our identity as being Christians in a culture that is hostile to Christ? How do we move from knowing Christ to being that presence in this society that we have? In a world where the leaders don't, for the most part, recognize God who gave them their office and their power, they feel no accountability to God. Well, from what we see from what Peter is teaching here, it starts with us self-consciously focusing on who we are in Christ and doing that rather than focusing on our rights. We hear a lot of that today. Peter, in his letter, he actually moves from a specific application of, of what God has done in electing us, and that specific application is to love one another fervently, I mean, this is really the starting place because if we in the church don't love one another fervently, how in the world are we going to stand against those who oppose us? How are we going to have any strength together? But he, he moves from that to our foundation and our fortress. And you see that in chapter 2 of, of what we are to build upon, what, where we live, and that is our identity in Christ. So what we have before us now is how do we live in this found, on this foundation? How do we build upon it that serves as a witness to the watching world? This is the question. And what we realize, for one thing, and you heard it in your the prayer this morning. We don't live on this foundation blocking out the world. We don't take the attitude, well, if God wants them saved, they'll bring them to our church. But we live in such a way that it is like a lamp or a, a light on a hill that draws people to our Savior. I have three points. My first is to remind us of what our identity is. You look at verses 9 and 10. You see these terms that described Israel in the Old Testament that are now described to us in the church. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, and that priesthood is for us to serve God. But what does that service to God look like? Well, he goes on. He says a holy nation. So that, that means it says something about our character, doesn't it? You remember back in the first chapter, 
we are told to be holy as the one who calls us is holy. Well, this is pointing at that. We are a people for his own possession. We're his precious possession because we are in Christ. And then we have our mission statement. My, my addition to the shorter catechism. What is the Christian's chief end? It is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, that's not just me or the one who stands in this pulpit. It is all of us to proclaim those excellencies. This is how we are to be living. And I would ask you then, why are you here? And I don't mean in this church. But why are you still on this earth? Why has God spared you thus far? It is to proclaim his mercies, his excellencies. The second point, major point. Then, if we understand this identity and we accept it, we are called to live it. Look what he says again in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Beloved. Well, you could say there's two senses in that. We are beloved because we are in Christ. But Peter is also writing in a, shall we say, not only a pastoral, but an affectionate way for these people who have been suffering because of their identity in Christ. They had been driven out of their home places. They were aliens because they were identifying as Christians. So he, he calls them then, and, and this is where the self-conscious part comes. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? These, the passions of the flesh are what identify the, the world around us. Just look at the news. Look at the things that come before our legislature. <laughs> look at the things on the school boards. Look at the things on TV, if you dare. This is what drives the world. And we are to be driven by a love of God, not a love of ourselves. And that's what the passions of the flesh uh, deal with. There's an additional thought. Y'all are, are probably well familiar with what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Peter says these 
things wage war against us. They become as hindrances as we would seek to run that race. In fact, these passions of the flesh can cripple us in our spiritual warfare. I've got an assignment for you all this afternoon. Take a little time alone. For some of you, it might be 10 or 15 minutes. For some, it might be longer. But sit down and write for yourself. What are the passions of the flesh that you struggle with that have already been cleansed by the blood of Christ, but you come back and struggle with them? Because this is, this is what Peter's addressing for us. This is what he's looking at. The second thing he says, do what is right, what is honorable. And understand, the standard of what is right is not what everyone else is doing. And it is not what our culture dictates. The standard of what is right is what the Lord our God has given us. In effect, it is the law of God. That's our standard. The Ten Commandments. The applications of them. Why would I say, am I putting you under the law to say that? Not at all. You see, when we are born again, what does the Holy Spirit do in us? But he conforms us to Christ. He regenerates, has regenerated us, and he is making us Christ-like. Well, what did Christ do? He kept the will of the Father perfectly. He kept the law. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you and I. It is, and it's not so that we can get to heaven but this is, this is what we look like and will look like in heaven. We don't have to run the race to finish it. Christ finished the race for us. But we all finish the course because that's being conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want a good understanding of the, uh, those commandments, go to the larger catechism. It's an excellent study of the implications and the applications of those commandments. And if, as you read that prayerfully, I am sure that, that, that God will then show you. But this is the standard. So we live in such a way as to cause non-Christians actually to glorify God. Now, it might not be until the day of judgment why would they do that? Because as they would look at yours and my lives and they would see that work of Christ that they rejected and yet they would see, they would have to acknowledge the glory of God. In fact, Philippians says, every knee will bow at that time and acknowledge it. So, beloved, you and I are to be a part of their being caused to give glory to God. You know, this is, this is where it will get tough for us because the, we're proclaiming a standard which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming that there is truth, real truth, truth that does not change. 
The world does not accept that. And as it comes to things like gender and this, all of this, then we're going to have conflict. But let it be clear by your behavior that at that time when others would slander you that the things said about you are lies because you are following Christ. You're seeking to live for him. So that then brings me to the third point and really the heart of of what Peter's getting at here, and that is submission to God. And you could say it's actually a point of application. I asked you if you prayed. Prayer, I believe, is first of all, us submitting to God as sovereign, as fulfilling all of the attributes he has. Before I can bring petitions to him, if I am doing that, I'm saying, Lord, I want your answer. See, that's what real prayer is going to be. It's not going to be coming saying, Lord, here's my check sheet. Give me what I'm asking. There's no submission in that. There's no giving God glory in that. There's not even seeking God's glory in that. That's seeking my glory. But if you understand his love of you, and his holding you secure. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And you see that you are precious in God's sight so that you can live now trusting everything that he would bring you through. If you but suffer God to guide you, that is the thrust of that. And as you encounter different things, you're going to come back to God as sovereign. Do you ever pray the 23rd Psalm? Ever sing it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you believe it? Because this is what it's addressing. Now, what's the application? Well, the first one is really relevant for us. It's submission to God through the governing authorities that he set over us. It may be submission also then to parents. The kids can zero in on that one. But if you, if, kids, if you are thinking about submission to parents, who should you be ultimately be submitting to? You may think about it as teachers, bosses, all of these things the first thing we see is that we should not be coerced into submission. But we should give it. We should initiate. That's our responsibility. Before the government, you know, you have to remember that Peter was not writing a letter to a church in a vacuum. He wasn't sitting in an ivory tower untouched by the world around him. I want to read a, a, a quote that, that talks about what his situation was. Nero was in control. 
He was a cruel, vicious, amoral tyrant that came to the throne when his mother, Agrippina, manipulated to get him there, pushing Claudius, the legal heir, out of the way. How was she repaid for her efforts? Nero banished and then murdered her. This is the man that is in charge. This is the man who, within a few years of this writing, of, will bring such torrent of persecution up, down upon the people of God, playing in a concert, the historians tell us, as Rome burned, having, we think, actually set the, the fires himself and then blaming it upon the Christians. And he brought perhaps the greatest persecution down upon the Christians up in that first century up until the end of that century. So Peter's saying, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to the king. I have to say to the president. And we don't hear the caveat, well, he's not my king. I didn't vote for him. We will all feel that sometimes in one situation or another. Sometimes we'll scratch our head as to what is God doing. But the scripture calls us to submit. And, and you think about this isn't just Peter. Paul does the same thing in Romans 13. He's saying, submit to the authorities, not whether you like them or whether it's your party in control or whether you agree with what they say. We don't submit to them just because they profess to be Christians. We are called to submit and to obey God through the one that he places over us. Now, I'm going to trust that you understand Peter is not saying to us, submit to them when they call upon you or they, they insist that you sin in some way. We're submitting to God first. We're seeking to be obedient to God. And if the one over us is trying to make us do what God has forbidden us to do, and I'm... And I'm speaking here of what's clearly seen in Scripture, then we need to respectfully disobey and not do what we're commanded to do. That should be obvious. But most of the, you know, and, and that's going to come, used to be more rarely. Maybe it's going to become more prevalent. But what we see here is that in every circumstance, in the home, on the highway, in our business. The question we come back to, how does my day-to-day -day living in these areas show the weightiness and significance of Christ in my life? And that's with all of the interactions that you and I have. How does my living show that Christ is glorious to me. You notice what he says here. He says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. What, now, what does that mean? Why are we doing it for Christ's sake? What can you do that would be for Christ's sake? Understand something. Our universe 
is not a democracy. It's not a republic. We'd have to say there's a hierarchical structure of authority in the universe. And it's our God who reigns. Christ is on the throne. And he rules. All authority then is given by him. And it is Satan that will inspire us to rebel against God's authority. We'll make excuses. Satan is said, called the lawless one. And he loves it when Christians will do what is right in their own eyes, when Christians will get all worked up in a passion and just sort of boil over. And they demand their rights. Uh, What happens, though, is when we seek to submit to God and we trust God in those difficult circumstances, what we're saying is we're, we're bearing a testimony to the one whose law stands above the laws that are restraining us now. When we show submission, we are showing our accountability to God, and we're showing our love of Christ. I, I ran into circumstances in the military where there was pressure to do certain things. Even as a chaplain, I ran into some circumstances like that. And my response was, I can't do that because the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want me to. Now, maybe that sounds pious, but there's not a better reason. (laughs) And what happens when you and I take that kind of a stance with humility is that we now make them accountable to God also. there, There was one circumstance where an acquaintance came in with something that was really perverse, and I said, wow, do you know the Bible speaks about that? I took him to Romans 1 and showed him what God gives people over to in their foolishness. His response was, wow, that's in the Bible? I showed him a few other passages, and he said, can I borrow this? And he read through that whole New Testament that weekend. And committed his life to Christ. But you see, what happens there is that you make, you hold yourself accountable to God. And in doing that, with a humility, you also then make them accountable to God and not you. It's not your opinion. It's God's opinion. Peter says, act as free men. That means there needs to be a proper use of our liberty. We are to live as free people, that is, as servants and as representatives of God. So Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cloak for evil. Uh, That reminded me of a couple passages back in Corinthians. You know, the Corinthians, they had their issues And this must be important because Paul actually repeats himself on this. 
He says in chapter 6, verse 12, when he's talking about uh, temptations, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he comes back to it a little later in chapter 10. And he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. In other words, we have a freedom. But with that, and because of the Spirit's work in us, we also have a discernment, not only of what is right and wrong, but of things that may be helpful or not. You just... I love the way our Westminster standards are set up. You look at the confession, chapter 19, a second assignment this afternoon. Read the last two sections of chapter 19, and then notice that chapter 20 speaks of our Christian liberty. There's the context. Our walk in Christ, in obedience to Christ, sets the framework for the liberty we enjoy in Christ. Verse 17 actually gives that summary. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Honor all mankind in general, yes. Why? They are image bearers of God, even if it is broken and perverted and corrupted. Love the brotherhood in particular. And then, here's the basis. Fear God. In other words, be in awe of God. And from that, you honor the king or the president. Calvin wrote, God is not feared, nor justice done to men, unless civil order prevails among us, and magistrates retain their authority. Do you know where we failed at that? I say we. Unfortunately, there were many that professed to be Christians. January 6th, 2020, the uh, rebellion, if you will, that took place in Washington, that was a failure for those who claim to fear God because we, it was an ignoring of the fact that God was in control, even realizing that bad things were done. There's corruption on both sides. Even recognizing that, that what those people were doing, and there were people that belonged to our churches doing it, was a denial of the sovereignty and the providence of God. And we must not be like that. Boy, did it give those who hate God the opportunity to slander our Savior, 
and to see no use in what we do. A second application. And then I'll get to our calling. And very briefly, it's submission to God even in evil, difficult circumstances. It's living mindful of God's sovereignty and love. You come back to that 23rd Psalm. You come back to the, the things that you saw in the first chapter, in the beginning of the second chapter. And what we have to do as, as we are in these very difficult circumstances and relationships with other people is because of our conscience before God is to remember that he is in control. He is sovereign. He has not lost control. And it may be, as Peter gave evidence, and as Christ is our example, we may actually suffer unjustly at the hands of cruel people. It won't be the first time. It has happened many times. But we submit because we are seeking to honor the lordship of Christ. And he says that will be commendable. But then that last part, What is our vocation and calling as you look at verses 21 through 25? What is your calling? What is your God-appointed vocation? For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I know you've heard many times people say, we're supposed to be Christ-like. Christ is an example for us of how we're to treat one another. I would say that most of the time, they're not thinking about what Peter's writing here. Because that, in becoming Christ-like, you're going to be more likely to be persecuted, to suffer. That's what Peter's getting at. This is how Christ is our example. It is submission to the Father to do the Father's will no matter what the circumstance that it takes us through. We are called then to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly and rightly as our Savior did. To depend upon the character of God that does not change. Again, you heard that in the prayer this morning. You see that in the Psalms. God doesn't change. He's not going to become mean. But all of these things that we encounter will increase as we grow in Christ. Or they have a likelihood of increasing. There's no revenge, no retaliation. Now, you might argue, well, Paul did appeal to Rome. And that's okay. There are things like that we can do. But what I want us to see this morning is that in our circumstances, the calling is to trust God and not be afraid and not 
take revenge, displacing God's place in our lives. He's the one that will bring revenge. Can I wait on him to do it right? I'm reminded of Jonathan Edwards. Probably all of you know that he was run out of his pastorate by the lie and slander of a man who supposedly was a friend. He was asked, why didn't you, by his other friends, why don't you defend yourself? And he said, if I defend myself and win, I may become prideful. And if I lose, then it brings shame upon God. And he waited, and it was some years later that that man broke down and confessed that he had lied about Edwards and sinned. And Edwards was restored, but God was the one that worked in it in his time. Christ's example. He was innocent of any sin, but he suffered injustice. There was no sin, there was no deceit in him. He didn't counter their charges, he looked to the Father. There was no revenge. Those who retaliate don't concede God's office to him. But by his death, what he suffered, he actually then pays the price that you and I can be set free to do what God wants. As Peter comes to the end of this part of his letter, let me just, he's actually drawing from Isaiah. And let me just read that as I finish. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds or his stripes you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What is God's calling for you all today? For I, I guess I should say us. It is to trust him. To trust him in all things. Look upon him as your shepherd. Peter says we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. He keeps us. No matter how difficult it gets. Our focus is upon Christ. To him belongs the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, such a large portion of Scripture, and yet, Lord, I'm confident that there is something for each one of us in it, something that we need to really pay attention to, maybe some things that we need to repent of, to give up to you. And that, Lord, 
perhaps starts with even wanting to retain our rights in our marriages, in our friendships, in our place in our society. And we're holding on to those more than to our Savior. Father, we pray that you would so work in us that our responses would be to give you the glory, to be willing to trust you no matter how difficult it is for us, knowing that you are at work in us, both to will and to do according to your good pleasure, knowing that the work you've begun on us, you will bring to completion, knowing that you are going to bring us and present us before the throne, spotless, without stain, and with great joy. Let that be our focus. And though we have not obtained it yet, that we will press on for that upward call of Christ Jesus. Father, work in us for his glory and for his sake. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.